Welcome back to another episode of Birthing Better Laws, Are You Informed? A mini podcast series that dives into a roundup of news articles relating to birth, reproductive rights, maternal health, and its intersection with the law. Welcome back, Brooke. Hello. It's good to be back. You know, we really haven't had a chance to to chat the past few weeks. I was traveling, visiting my family. You were traveling. Uh, So how was Philadelphia? Let's talk about the AAJ conference. Yeah, so the AAJ conference was really good. Um, It just for those who don't know, I am a part of the American Association for Justice, which is one of the largest plaintiff groups in the country. And they host annual conventions. So they have two annual conventions a year that are like three or four days. They have CLE programs, they have business meetings for the different committees that are a part of the AAJ. And then sprinkled throughout the year, they have other smaller programs. So this was the summer convention, um, one of the larger of the two. It was really refreshing. I feel like for me, I'm a part of the birth trauma litigation group. And it was just so refreshing being in a room with other lawyers that do this type of work. And, you know, I communicate with them on a weekly, almost daily basis uh, on the listserv, but it's just really nice to all be in the same room a couple times a year talking about the issues that we're seeing in birth injury law, talking about the defenses, talking about um, different trends that we're seeing in maternal care, outcomes, things of that nature. Because, you know, we, we read the headlines and we see the statistics about maternal health in, in our country, but the nitty gritty really is behind the scenes. So the, the headlines don't ever really dive into what's actually going on or, or what's happening. I will see issues arise in my cases or I'll get clients calling me and I'll be seeing certain things or I'll be deposing either doctors, obstetricians, nurses, maternal fetal medicine doctors. And I will say, am I crazy? Am I thinking that this is really happening? Is is my perception skewed? And I understand that my perception is skewed. I, I understand that if anybody is calling my office, it's because it was a bad outcome. But it can feel like really isolating for me sometimes in the world of, of headlines and media and social media and other things like that. It can feel sometimes isolating when I'm hearing the same thing over and over from clients that are calling me, but then it's such a small percent of the big picture of maternal health, or it's a small, such a small percent of what's actually happening. And I can sort of feel like I'm thinking things that are, are occurring that aren't, or I'm like, well, maybe it's, it's not really that big of an issue or that big of a problem. But then when I get in a room with, you know, 300 or, or so of other attorneys across the country that are handling similar cases, and they're telling me about, you know, things that they're hearing or things that are coming up in their cases, it's just refreshing it's refreshing and inspiring. You know, it's just, it's, it's nice to hear that we're all fighting for the same thing, fighting for better care for our patients, fighting for better outcomes for moms and babies, and just, just pushing the ball forward in that direction. And talk a lot on our Instagram because I, about frivolous lawsuits or lawsuits that don't have any merit. 
And I do that because there's a there's so much information on the internet about we're such a, a litigious country or there's too many lawsuits or you know the reason why certain things are occurring in hospitals are because of litigation and you know nothing is black and white that's absolutely a, a, a portion of it but we cannot be bringing frivolous lawsuits or or lawsuits that don't have any merit on a majority basis because we'll financially be bankrupting our own firms, but also we'll be thrown out of court. There's safeguards that are in place, um, procedural safeguards that are in place to eliminate lawsuits that have no merit. I was a, a speaker on um, Sunday of the, the convention for the birth trauma litigation group, and I was talking about uh, Daubert cha challenges. And you know, that was that was a huge part of my discussion is, is these challenges against other experts. And, and we'll talk about that um, when, when we dive into kind of what my discussion was. But, you know, a huge part of birth injury law is the medicine. And it, it's being able to address these new studies and these new findings. So and, and address what's actually happening in clinical practice with patients. These conventions and these birth trauma litigation groups are really focused on learning new strategies, learning the medicine, and, and being up to date on evidence-based practices. You know, I think that being a part of this group, it, it makes me feel comfortable knowing that if I have somebody who calls me from a different state, that I know of individuals in whatever state that they live in that practice this type of law that understands birth injury cases. It's so important that if you're calling someone for a, a potential case because you or your child suffered an injury, you really need to be knowing that they are practicing, that they are familiar with these cases, that they understand the medicine, that they've worked on these cases before. And you know, I, I love the, the group because we are so open with each other. And so I know that if it's a situation, maybe it's a case I've never handled before. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a type of complication that I haven't been familiar with. I feel comfortable knowing that I can reach out to any one of these lawyers and say, um, you know, who has handled these cases before and knowing my own limitations. That's a huge part of having the responsibility of doing cases that are so complex and also so important to the client. You know, they, they only have one chance at this. So it's my responsibility to know when, okay, like this is something that I'm able to handle. And this is something where I need to be reaching out to another birth injury lawyer or another lawyer that might have more expertise in this particular area. And, and so I, I just, love knowing that if somebody calls me, I'll be able to at least point them in the right direction. Yeah. One of the most commonly asked questions we get on social media is either what state are you in or how do I find a birth injury lawyer in my state? And, you know, the the answer that you give is that, you know, you have litigated cases across the country, but that you also have a network of attorneys. So I'm sure that this is comforting for people to hear because, you know, it just it just shows that you're actually connected with this network. So you started touching on what you spoke about a little bit, but can you kind of walk us through what you spoke about on Sunday? Yeah, sure. 
So a part of me trying to kind of myth bust some, some things that I see on the internet regarding birth injury lawsuits is this idea that they are brought frivolously or they, they don't have any merit or there's too many of them and that we'll just kind of sue whoever if there's, there's an injury. And, you know, after being in the birth injury world for over a decade, it's just that's not the case for major- the majority of these lawsuits. So, you know, I, again, I talk about this on my stories, a lot about the, the financial risks for a business perspective. But again, these, these safeguards that are in place um, through laws and regulations and procedural um, statutes that I have to comply with. And one of those is having a qualified medical expert come and testify regarding the standard of care, regarding causation and damages. Part of that is making sure that they're qualified on whatever topic it is that they're testifying to, but not only just that they're qualified in that type of practice, but their opinions and what it is that they're testifying to is also reliably based. So it's it's two-pronged. It's, is this a qualified medical professional professional that has the credentials that is able to come in and testify on these issues. That's the first prong that we have to get past. You know, I can't just bring in, if, a, if it's a, an obstetrical negligence case, I can't just bring in a, a doctor that doesn't deliver babies, right? Or hasn't ever delivered babies. They have to be qualified in whatever it is that they're coming to testify to by um, training, education, experience, accredi- accreditation. They have to be qualified. But even second, secondary, let's say I get a extremely qualified, board certified obstetrician that, you know, is a fellow and a teaching and and all of these things has amazing credentials. He or she just can't come in and spout off an opinion that they have, that their own personal belief is. They also have to have a reliable methodology in how they came to the conclusion that they did. And that's the second part of their opinions and the second part of scrutiny that courts put on experts who are coming to testify. So any opinion that's coming in, whether it be medical or scientifically related to the standard of care, causation, damages, has to be reliably based. Their conclusions have to come from reliable methodology. And there are certain factors that the court looks at to say this opinion came from a a reliable method, right? A a differential diagnosis that was based off of education, training, experience, the medical community, medical literature, evidence-based data, things of that nature. But even if, let's say, they get past that, so first they get past the prong that they're a qualified expert, then they get past the prong that their conclusions or their opinions are, are reliably uh, medically based, then they have to apply that reliably to whatever facts of the case that are present. So even if they come in and they say, okay, nine times out of 10, this is how the care is, this is what the standard of care is, they still have to say that is what the medical community and the evidence and medical literature and the guidelines 
are for the standard of care, but it's also for this particular patient. And this is why. And they have to explain why the specific facts of that case meet the reliability of the rest of the opinions. So it's, it's so much more complex than just, I hire somebody to come in and testify. It's multi-leveled. It's, there's a lot of scrutiny from the courts, from the other opposing side. So what's good for the goose is what's good for the gander. So it, the same applies for the medical experts that the defense has coming in. So if I'm, if I have a medical expert and, um, the, the defense can challenge my medical expert and say, yeah, I don't think so. This doesn't fit the bill. This, this individual isn't reliable. They can file a motion to the court to challenge and try and exclude my expert. I can do the same to them, and I do. So there'll be situations where extremely qualified individuals come. Um, they've got all the credentials in the world. They're hired by the hospitals and the defense team, and they come and they testify, and their opinions might be supported by medical literature. It might be supported by the medical community, but they cannot apply it reliably to the facts of the case, the individual patient uh, that the case is about and the issues at bar. And so when that occurs, I file motions against them to say, sorry, you can't just come in and say, well, I read this in, in an article and therefore this, is, this must have happened in this case. It has to be more. They have to be able to point to specific medical records, specific claims in the case and facts in the case in order to come in and testify. So that was my, what my discussion was about was this process of um, these challenges that occur in the court system. Yeah, I think this is all really interesting. You know, I'm not a lawyer. And so when I first started working with you, I didn't really know any of this. I had no idea the role that expert witnesses had in your cases. I had no idea the financial risk that, you know, you take on when you take a new case. So it's been really interesting for me to learn. I also think for healthcare professionals, especially people that are early on in their career, it's important for them to know that, you know, you're not taking on frivolous lawsuits. No one is because it would be too much of a risk to their firm. So I think this transparency is really important. Um, so our first story is about freestanding birth centers that will now offer alternatives to hospitals in Connecticut. Yeah. So I saw this and it's kind of all over the news. So if you live in New England, um, you've probably seen this in the headlines about Connecticut and freestanding birth centers and this new public act that's been written into the legislature. And it sets up license, uh, a licensing and certification process for these independent birth centers. And it's it's meant to create, you know, an alternative to traditional hospitals for low risk pregnancies and deliveries. And we will put the actual act in the show notes for anybody who's interested in reading the act, because the headlines don't really go into detail about how these birth centers are going to be accredited or regulated, you know, who's eligible as providers or what or how the birth center is going to kind of, you know, get up and get up and running and who is going to be able to access 
these birth centers. You know, Connecticut and the people who are proponents of this, their goal is to improve maternal health, improve a, a better birthing experience, to provide more access. It also establishes um, a doula uh, certification program and instructs Connecticut Office of Early Childhood to design a statewide program for universal nursing and, and, and home visits for postpartum and pregnant individuals. So how do you feel about the regulation of birthing centers? This is a very in-depth uh, question, I feel like, and it's it's far more in-depth than I think. To talk about a little bit what we do here is um, we have obvious, we have news alerts, right? So you and I have alerts on our emails that say maternal health or birth injury or medical malpractice. And we see headlines, we read the article, and then we kind of chat about it. It's a, it's a hot take. It's not designed, like these episodes aren't designed necessarily to give you the full picture, just to kind of tell you, hey, this is what's happening out there. This is what we've read. These are some of our thoughts based off of our own experience and based off of the firm and based off of what my clients and, and my practice has kind of shown over the course of, of however many years. So I think with the question of regulating birth centers, wow, that is a super in-depth discussion. And it's one that's going to be had more and more frequently. And I think that it's going to be something that more and more states are contemplating how to do it in a way that serves the purpose of both safety of patients, but allowing these centers to exist and allowing these options to be available for individuals who choose to have this alternative of experience of either birthing at home or birthing at a freestanding center. And I think that sometimes regulations can be so restrictive or so controlling that it almost like defeats the whole purpose of, of having it in the first place. So there are situations where the regulation is, is too strict and then it's not serving the purpose of actually allowing birthing centers or at-home birth providers to do what it is that they're, they're seeking to do. So I think that it's a balance. Um, there's also on the opposite side, situations where there's no safeguards. And I feel like if there's no regulation, no safeguards whatsoever, it can lead to really devastating issue, injuries for both the mom and the, and the baby. But also for me, it really comes to information. What information is out there and accessible to the patient when they're making the decision to either have a hospital birth birth in a birthing center, birth at home, what information do they have? Are they receiving proper evidence-based education by qualified individuals so that they can make the best decision for themselves and their baby? What they choose to do with that information is really a personal choice. So for me, safeguards are, are we making regulations available for this open um, communication, transparent communication, and making sure that there is not misinformation about the healthcare, about the, the potential risk 
of doing it, uh, of having a birth either in the hospital or at home or in a birthing center? Are they aware of that? And it's not just their own, not just statistically the risk, but their own individual risk. Are they aware of that? Are they aware of, you know, who it is that's going to be? And this goes across the board. I mean, I, you know, this should be something that I think is important in a hospital just as much as a birthing center. You know, who is it that is treating them and do they have the credentials and does the patient have the information about that provider to say, I feel comfortable knowing that they've had X amount of deliveries at, at home, or I'm comfortable knowing that if this particular complication occurs, they know how to management and do I, and, and do they align with what it is that I am looking for? So I, I definitely think it's a balance and I think it's very difficult too when legislature laws, statutes first come out, they're worded in, in spe specific ways, right? Because they know that litigation is going to follow if they don't. So sometimes there are words and, and when you read this act, you know, they define, okay, what is the definition of a, a birth center, okay? And so, you know, it says a freestanding facility that is licensed by the department to provide perinatal labor and delivery and postpartum care and immediately after the delivery to persons presenting with low risk pregnancy and healthy newborns for a period typically less than 24 hours. So, you know, within that definition, we also have to understand what de what other definitions are within that definition of birthing center. So what's the definition of a low risk pregnancy? What's the de definition of healthy newborns? What's the definition of and who is making the determination of what is the lo a low risk pregnancy? Because one one provider might to, you know, define low risk pregnancy as one thing, one provider might define it as something different. So that's kind of where sometimes legislature can get tricky because we're trying to put in regulations, but then there's also questions within those definitions that occur. So for this subsection, they tried to define low risk pregnancy as meaning an uncomplicated singleton pregnancy that has a vertex presentation and is at low risk for developing complications during labor and birth and is determined by an evaluation and examination conducted by a licensed healthcare provider acting within the scope of the provider's practice. Again, what is the definition of a licensed healthcare provider acting within the scope of such a provider's practice. Are we talking about a licensed midwife? Are we talking about an obstetrician? Like who's making that determination? And I'm sure that there's more information within this act that kind of defines what they mean there. But low risk pregnancy here, uncomplicated singleton preg pregnancy with a vertex presentation, at what time? You know, is that what time in gestation? Um, that also eliminates a lot of people from being able to access at uh, the birthing centers. Um, so it's it's more than just Connecticut put out this this new legislation and now birth centers are going to be available everywhere. It also goes through the process of who has to accredit 
these birthing centers. The Commission for Accreditation of Birthing Centers is the one that is going to be responsible for uh, the accreditation of these birthing centers. We'll also put the website for this commission if anybody is interested to see how birthing centers go about being um, accredited. So, you know, I think that, again, it comes down to transparency and information available to the individual making the, the ultimate decision. Yeah, great points. Uh, like you said, we'll we'll link the resources, the act, and I think this is something we'll continue to cover, you know, if any other states are kind of talking about this more. So next we have, should nurses with doctorates be called a doctor? So in California, a nurse practitioner with a doctorate had to pay $20,000 in a civil settlement for allegedly describing herself as a doctor on professional websites and social media. So in the case of People of California versus Sarah Ernie, the complaint filed against the nurse practitioner by the state of California stated that the nurse was promoting herself on her professional website and her social media accounts as doctor and failed to advise the public that she was not a medical doctor. She also allegedly failed to identify her supervising physician. So now there's also pushback on the state of California. In June, three nurse practitioners with doctorates of nursing sued the California Attorney General, leaders of the Medical Board of California, and leaders of the State Board of Registered Nurses, arguing that they have the right to call themselves doctor. So this has been a little bit of an ongoing conversation online, and I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I thought this was really, really interesting, especially now that we're moving into the age of social media marketing, social media advertising. Um, I mean, blogs and websites and all of that have been uh, have been around for decades. But, you know, we are the accessibility of information from a medical perspective to everywhere across the country is just building and building and building and people are getting their medical information um, in different ways and different in different avenues. And so I thought that this was really interesting and um, surprising that California was the most strict out of all of the states on this particular issue. But currently under California law, only surgeons and physicians can use the, the word doctor or DR prefix when they're advertising on either websites, social media, on a, a jacket or a coat, you know, with, with the name. And that I feel like it's very important because it's confusing, right? Because there are so many different ways that somebody can get a doctorate degree. You know, that somebody can get a doctorate degree, somebody can get a uh, a PhD, you know, I'm a Juris doctor. I think that any individual that has gone on to get a doctorate degree, it's within their right to say, I am a doctor of whatever it is that they've studied. And I don't have a problem with that. I think that under the current California law, it's very black and white. It's if you're a physician or a surgeon, you can call yourself a doctor. Otherwise, sorry, you can't. But I do feel like it's been a little bit more, I mean, 
you know, we th- I think of like Dr. Phil, right? Or, or Dr. You know, Biden, she, she goes by doctor. And I, I think it's less about the use of the word doctor and more a test of whoever it is that you're offering services to, are you holding yourself out or are they being misunderstood? from the perspective of who it is that they're treating or who it is that they're receiving the services for. So does the person understand that these individuals are doctorates of nursing or, you know, doctorates of physical therapy, doctors of chiropractic care, you know, those sorts of things. As long as the person understands what education and qualifications that individual has they're and they're not relying on it to their detriment then i think we're okay right and so you know for me if somebody says i'm dr so and so but then it's very clear and obvious through their practice through what they're putting on the internet through all of those other aspects that there's no confusion to anybody who's getting the treatment then i think that the statute can probably be redrafted or amended or, or however, to include people who have spent, you know, seven, eight, 10, 15 years of additional education to get their doctorate degree. And, and, you know, the, the nurse who is fighting against this, you know, she said, the word doctor doesn't really only belong to physicians, you know, and we need to educate everybody and patients are intelligent and they can understand the difference. And I, I, I do agree with her in the sense that as long as the patients understand the difference, understand what type of doctorate degree, then we're probably safe. Um, but that's really what the statute is trying to prevent. It's trying to prevent confusion for the patient about what that individual is holding themselves out as and to their detriment, right? So I'm going to this person who I think might be a doctor. They're not actually a doctor. I'm unaware of that. I'm injured because I had an expectation of care that was exceeding the scope of what their education or training was. You know, that makes sense to me from a legal perspective. But again, I think it's, I think that it's time. And I think that because of the, the way that our how we're reaching people is changing, I think that it should likely be redrafted or clarified and so that it's not so black and white. Yeah, for sure. And so have you seen in your line of work, have you seen any confusion with nurse practitioners being called doctors? Is this something you haven't really ran into? No, I haven't really ran into it from the perspective of a patient coming to me and saying, I thought this person was a doctor and they weren't. I have had a lot of situations where I've had clients come to me and say, you know, I thought my provider had experience in XYZ and then I found out later that they didn't. Um, I thought my provider, you know, was qualified in, in certain aspects and they weren't. And I wouldn't have chosen that route had I known. I've also seen situations where patients 
thought that their doctor was an employee of the hospital. So a lot of times, you know, as a patient or somebody's pregnant, they go to prenatal care appointments. And a lot of times that's at a private office and that individual, their provider says to them, like, I have staff privileges or I have privileges at this hospital. And it's clear to the patient that the doctor is an obstetrician in a private practice on its own in, in its own um, employee, employment circumstance with the clinic versus an actual employee of the hospital. There are some certain situations where maybe the clinic is attached to the hospital or maybe it's on the same block or in the same area, right? Or the doctor wears a coat that says the hospital's name every time they're in a medical appointment. And then that patient gets this idea or this understanding that the doctor is an employee of the hospital when they're really not, they're just independent contractors. And that's why you see lawsuits where you sue, we're, we're suing the hospital, but then we're also suing the doctor individually because the doctor is not an employee of the hospital. So they have to be sued in, independently. They're independent contractors. They're not employees of the hospital. But in situations where either the hospital is holding that doctor out as an employee, allowing that doctor to be on campus, allowing that doctor to wear coats or advertise with the hospital, the, the hospitals allowing the doctor to do other things that would confuse the patient and the patient would say, oh, I think that they're employed by the hospital. You know, we can, even if they're not, we can file something called um, an agency. So we can say that they're, they're an agent of the hospital, not because they're an actual employee, but because the, the, the hospital's holding this doctor out or allowing the public to get the appearance that this doctor is, is an employee of the hospital. So I've seen more of that than, I, than clients calling me and saying, you know, she was calling herself or he was calling himself a doctor and he really wasn't. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think this is something we can continue to monitor, see if any other cases like this arise. But to wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? So everybody right now is talking about the Barbie movie. And I have not seen the Barbie movie yet. Have you? I'm actually going tonight. And that's you are. I was like, I got to channel my Barbie energy. Yes, you are wearing pink. I love that. So it's funny because the reason why I wanted to talk about it now is because I have not seen it. I've only seen, obviously, they had like a $100 million marketing thing or something. It was crazy. So obviously, everything has been flooded with Barbie content, advertising. Um, and when you first, when the first trailer came out, you had said to me, oh, let's do like a Barbie something, something for the bar, for our page on Barbie. And I have never been a Barbie fan. I just, and it, I've never thought too much into it. For me personally, it was, I just didn't like it growing up. So my mom st 
still has, and I'm going to find it so that we can post it on my stories. My mom still has like her original Barbie. Oh my. That's and so- back then Barbie's hair was black, which is interesting. So I don't know. She had a, a, a Barbie that had black hair and it was wearing that, which I'm sure everybody's seen the swimsuit that's black and white striped. She also had midge. She still has them like in a little, that little leather or whatever it is box that it used to come in. And she was obsessed with dolls and obsessed with Barbies growing up. She had two boys and then she had me. And so she just assumed that I was going, she was thrilled. She was so thrilled. She's going to buy me dolls. She's going to buy me Barbies. And I just wanted to be like my brothers. I had zero interest in dolls. I had zero interest in Barbies. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to wear their clothes. I wanted to do whatever it was that they were doing. So I stopped having birthday parties at five years old. I told my mom, I don't want to have birthday parties anymore because the only thing that people bring brought me for gifts were Barbies. So funny. Yeah. So in my head, like, I just, the, 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 it just didn't do it for me. Then I had, you know, my own kind of opinions about Barbie and questions about her and, you know, her body type and all of that stuff. Um, but then come my daughter and I'm thinking she's, I, I made the same mistake that my mother did. My mom thought I was going to be like her. I thought my daughter was going to be like me. And of course she comes out literally of the womb practically in pink and glitters and (laughs) wants all of the Barbies, all of the dolls, all of those things. So I have started to accept um, the Barbie a little bit more because of my daughter and in a way that I hope is healthy. (laughs) Uh, But now based off of what I've seen, the short clips, I'm actually kind of interested in going to see it. So we'll see. I will give my hot take of the Barbie movie after I've seen it, because now I've heard that it has a deeper meaning, I guess, and that it was done well. I've heard both criticisms and support. Yeah, I've heard both as well. And I I mean, similar, I had Barbies growing up, but I, you know, we are both horse girls. I had briar horses and the little dolls that went along with those that wore riding pants and boots. And that's like really what I was drawn to. But I, and it's funny because the first trailer that they released, you know, they released it with her and her Barbie feet walking out. So I just kind of expected it to be the more traditional Barbie stereotypes, but it does seem like it's almost playing on those stereotypes yet again, bringing in the deeper meaning and yeah, I'm, I'm going tonight. So I'll, I'll have to share with you tomorrow and then we can recap on, on the next episode. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. I'm also, I mean, and I'm definitely in my pink era. I feel like I've just fully embraced that. It was a color that I really did not wear for a very long time. I just never, never liked pink. And again, my daughter has opened my eyes to the color pink I, her first year of life, like all of her clothes is so funny. I just never bought her any clothes that had pink. And then the second she started to have opinions, it was pink, 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 pink. Everything is pink, loves pink. So I'm embracing it. I think kids are kids. (laughs) They're going to like what they're going to like. 
stay tuned so that we can both, because I'm going to definitely go now and we'll, we'll hear your perspective and mine as well. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'm excited, like I said. And so that I think wraps up this episode. We'll link everything as always in the show notes and we'll catch you next time.